Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today we will go into the Salt and Light storage and bring out some of our favorite conversations from the fall of 2014. First, we go to Rome with Salt and Light producer Sebastian Gomes, who tells us all about the Synod on the Family. And we meet singer-songwriter Simonetta. In our second half hour, liturgical composer Ken Canedo takes us back to the 60s for the Folk Mass Revolution, and we end the program by reconnecting with Father Rob Gallia. Remember to visit us at saltandlighttv.org radio and to comment on what you hear or to ask any questions, look for me, Deacon Pedro, on Facebook and Twitter. We begin now with the Synod on the Family. As we speak, bishops from every country in the world are meeting in Rome to speak about the family. And I'm sure you've heard the word synod. We've, we've been mentioning it in this program and last week. And uh, it's just a way to say that the bishops are meeting. And this, ex- this is an extraordinary synod because it's actually a preparatory meeting for the ordinary synod that will take place next October in 2015. The topic is the family. And we have a whole Salt and Light team in Rome covering the Synod. And I had the chance to speak with Sebastian Gomes earlier this week. Sebastian, thank you for joining us. I know, you, I know you're running around busy, not getting enough sleep. Um, but uh, what is the significance uh, that the topic of this synod, these two synods is the family? What does that say to us? Well, first of all, thanks, uh, Deacon, for having me on. It's such an important issue. You know, from the very moment that Pope Francis announced this synod and released that questionnaire that went out to all the bishops' conferences around the world, there's been huge Mm -hmm. interest because it's practical, because everybody comes from a family, right? We all have those familial experiences. And, of course, there's great challenges to family life today. Um, So it's such a, a relevant and pertinent topic that everybody is interested in it, and, and certainly the bishops and Pope Francis are too. Yeah, because everybody, I, I've heard from bishops and other people, they say that the synods generally are inconsequential. Nothing ever gets done. Nothing ever comes out of them. But is it your sense that this one, because of the topic, is something that's going to affect everyone? Because as you said, everyone is in a family or comes from a family. I think you're exactly right. And the other thing that's really important to remember is that this synod is part of a process. Mm -hmm. It's a real synod in the sense, because the word synod means journeying together, walking together. Right. And this synod is uh, a part of a bigger journey, uh, because we're going to have the next next year's synod, the ordinary synod, that's going to be much bigger, and then something concrete is going to come out of that. But this is really the preparatory synod. So it's really voices from around the world coming here, and the point is to produce a new working document that can then, again, be disseminated throughout the world to all the different uh, bishops' conference, to all the people of God, and then it's supposed to be an engagement, a discussion, a debate about these things, and then we'll come back next year and really hash the stuff out, and then the church will pronounce something at the end of that. Uh, So that's the other element to this that makes it really dynamic and kind of different and a little bit more you know, lively than, than some past synods. That's true, and that, that actually it sounds very exciting that, that the church, who, that we think the church is always so, so abstract and so separate that it actually f- seems that the church is, 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 is working on something that is involving everybody from around the world to produce something that's going to be great. Exactly, and it's so, it's so Pope Francis, you know, yes. because he, so from the time of his election, he's been reaching out to people, and he's been connecting with people on that level, right? 
on their level. He's been he's been coming to them and saying, you know, what what do you think? What do you need? You know, what is your situation? Uh, and he gives that sense of you know being a pastor. That's why people feel so connected to them because they feel that he understands what the real issues are out in the world, out in the parish, out in families. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and so there's a great positive response to that, of course. Yeah. Now this is your your second synod. Most lay people, like most people, period, will never have a chance to to go to a synod or even sit inside the synod hall. What what does it look like? Who is there? What what is a, a typical morning afternoon like in the synod hall? Right. Yeah, good question. Well, I'll paint a little picture. I mean, the, the hall itself is kind of like an amphitheater. If you think of like one of those old Roman theaters where they had those great plays and dr- uh, dramas uh, and things like that, it, it's right. just like that. So there's a head table at the bottom in the front where the Pope sits, and he's surrounded by you know the, the people who are kind of overseeing uh, the logistical parts of the synod and the organizational parts, and the people who are kind of who are kind of running each session, you know introducing the different speakers and that kind of thing. Right. So the and po- then everybody else is just sitting in the theater. So you've got cardinals, and then you have bishops. You have all the eastern bishops in one section. Um, and then at, at further up, you have the lay observers and the special delegates who have been invited to speak. And basically, this first week in particular, everybody who, uh, all the bishops and all the cardinals, have a chance to give an intervention, a four-minute intervention, to say, to comment on, on the initial working document, that was prepared last, uh, the, the, yeah, this past year, right. um, and to to say here's what the most important or most relevant issue is for me and for the country and for the bishops' conference and for the people of God that are in my part of the world. Right. Okay. Hold on a second. So the Holy Father, the Pope, is there every day. He is. The only time that he's not there is on Wednesdays when he goes to the general, general audience, audience in the morning. But other okay. than that, he's there. And I rem- that's a, that's a difference because I remember last time in 2012. And remember, this is just you know a few months before Pope Benedict resigned. Resigned, yeah. Uh, he was only there maybe you know a half to two thirds of the sessions because he was involved in a lot of stuff, but he was also very tired at that right. point. You know, right. we noticed that he was very tired even when he was there. Uh, so Pope Francis, um, uh, you know, we know how kind of energetic and enthusiastic he is about these kinds of things. Uh, he's there and he's listening. Yeah. And he really set the tone. The most important intervention so far was the intervention that he gave on the very first yeah. day in the morning. He said, I want openness and I want honesty. Uh-huh. And I want people to listen with humility. Right. So those are, those, that's what we need in order to achieve a synodality, collegiality, right? That experience of fraternity and unity, but also you know, freedom, relationship, enough, enough respect and care and concern and charity for each other that we can really hash out and, and, and get struggle through, walk together through these very important and difficult uh, topics. So is it fair to say that, that this, this is, there is a stage one of these interventions, so every single bishop, and there's bishops there from every country, will make a presentation and what, people take notes? Is there a discussion afterwards? Yeah, exactly. Uh, everybody has the right to speak. So the first week is really getting through all of those official interventions that, that the bishops want to give. Uh, and then every afternoon there's an hour of free time, basically open mic. Mm-hmm. You know, you're on the radio, so you understand open mic. Yes. Everybody can, anybody can jump in and say what, say what they think. They can start a conversation. There's some back and forth about particular issues. Okay. Uh, it's really, really fascinating. Okay. Now, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the expression that when all is said and done, a lot, of, a lot is said and not much is done. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> how, much, how much of that is, I, mean, I guess maybe it's too early to say 
at this stage. Will there be uh, maybe next week small group sessions? Do we working groups? Will any of that be part of the synod? Yeah, so the second week people break into language groups and they basically take everything that's been said, what they've heard, the official um, uh, address that uh, Cardinal Erdo from Hungary gave, which was really a summary address right at the beginning of the the synod. Uh They'll take all of that, everything that they've heard, and try to talk about it and, and break it down in their small language groups and, and you know, put together what are the big things, what are the main issues, what would we want to see based on what's been said in a new working document that will then be sent out around the world. Yeah. Um, so, and then they come back at the end of the second week and they meet in, a, in the big audience hall again, the big Aula Hall, yeah. and uh, actually vote on what will be in this working document. Okay, so then the goal of this, as you said, the goal of this uh, extraordinary synod, so this prep preparatory synod, is to prepare a working document for the next synod uh, that will set, the, I guess, the guidelines or the, the discussion, the tone for the discussion, the topics of discussion for the next synod. Exactly. I mean, a lot of people are kind of, you know, watching in expectation, and we have all these big, you know, media people around here saying, oh my gosh, you know, the doctrine of the church is going to change in a day. Right. And uh, it's just not true. I mean, that it's, uh, <laughs> the other thing is you've got to understand exactly what you just said, that this is the first stage in a process, in yeah. a journey. Uh, and so we can't have those kinds of expectations. I mean, they're just not realistic, right. and they're also not the goal of this yeah. stage of the process. Right. So yeah. yes, it's just to produce a new working document that then will be sent out to the world and people will be able to engage in a, in a dialogue with that document at the local level. Yeah. Now you mentioned that there are some lay experts, so these are not bishops. They're probably not, well, they're not clergy. They're, who are these people and, and, and why are they there? Well, that's hugely important. Uh, there are not many. There's 13 couples. Uh, from different parts of the world. Uh-huh. Interestingly, what's new about this synod is they've been asked to address the synod at the beginning of each session. So the beginning of each morning and afternoon session, the first people to speak are a lay couple, uh-huh. and they share an experience. They share their point of view. And the goal is really to have, have that frame the conversation of that particular session. And many of the bishops have commented about how wonderful that is. Um, you know, m- most of them, uh, would really like to see even more lay people involved in the process. Okay. Uh, we have to wait and see what the what the dynamic of the next synod will be, what the makeup of the next synod will be, and how many lay people will be involved. It's obviously uh, not only important but absolutely essential to do that because when we're talking about families, we're talking primarily about lay people. Yes, of course. You know, uh, but it's a wonderful working relationship and talking to the lay couples that are there. I mean, they feel that it's a great privilege, but they also feel that it's a real kind of family atmosphere in and of itself, because the pastors of the church, the bishops, really do care greatly for their people. Uh, and, and a lot of the interventions that the bishops are giving, they're saying, look, we've talked to people on the ground. These are our pastoral experiences. The, the, this is really what the people are saying. You know, this is, we're bringing the message but we're bringing the message on behalf of, of a complete church, you know, a whole mm-hmm. church made up of all these people mm-hmm. in our local context. Okay. Okay, Sebastian, we're going to leave it there. I know you're running around and you have things to do and, and sleep to get, um, <laughs> but enjoy yeah. while you're in Rome, and we'll get a, try to get a chance to speak to you again next week. Okay, thanks a lot, Deacon. Appreciate it. 
Sebastian Gomes is the producer for Salt and Light Television and the producer of the documentary The Francis Effect. You can follow all his coverage of the Synod online and through our social media at saltandlighttv.org. I spoke to him earlier this week. He was in Rome. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Simonetta and Forever, with Ave Sacher from their album Ineffable. That was Simonetta and Forever with Ave Sacher from their album Ineffable. Simonetta has been making Catholic music for a long time now. She has recorded, performed, and appeared on many television programs as a solo artist. She has two music albums, Keep Your Eyes on the Beloved and Faith on My Sleeve. Simonetta also has a rosary album recorded with the late Father Benedict Grishel. Simonetta is also the mother of four beautiful young women who have beautiful voices, and the five have collaborated on a new album, Ineffable, by Simonetta and her daughters, Forever. That's the title. That's what they call themselves. So to tell us more, I'm now joined by Simonetta. Simonetta, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Hello. So bef- Hi, it's great to be here. Before I, before I ask you about the new album and, and, and your daughters, I, I want to go back. So I always ask guests on this show, what was it like to grow up? Did were you Catholic? Was it was it where was it a musical household? How did you end up doing music? What was it like Absolutely. growing up? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I did grow up in a very musical home. Uh, I was Catholic uh, my whole life, and um, my parents were musicians. My father was an organist uh, for the church, and he was a choir director, and also put on musicals. And my mother was an opera singer, and was also in my father's choir, wow. and that's how they basically met, and um, 
you know, the rest was history. They met and got married and had six children, and uh-huh. um, we were raised Catholic, but um, and we were raised in a very musical home, and my father, being an organist, um, we would sing for Mass mm-hmm. for him occasionally, and it was always music that was, that he, at the time, what he was playing for church, so it was Latin hymns mm-hmm. and music like that. And um, so then somewhere along the way, uh, you know, I always say um, there was a point, and I think all of our siblings' life, that I think it's the time of, um, you know, Vatican II or be it what what was going on. um, Our parents, my parents thought that we were having a clear understanding of the faith, and we weren't because at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, the schools basically, I think my parents thought were teaching us the faith. And uh, so there were some holes there, and we didn't grasp everything. So uh, I kind of had a reversion. My husband and I, once we were married, and um, that's kind of how the resurgence of music came back into my life. Right, because you were not writing music until later on, right? Right. I I didn't even, uh, it wasn't anything that I was thinking doing or sought out to do. Uh-huh. Uh, it, we didn't fully fall away from the church. I was always Catholic, but I started to um, attend Protestant services, and I guess I didn't have that clear understanding in my heart of right. what was the difference. Uh-huh. And so it wasn't until I went on a Father uh, John Harden retreat, once my husband and I were married, that I came home from that retreat with an absolute complete total reversion of my heart and I saw how my faith I I did not have the understanding of the Eucharist that was the number one thing right. and I realized who Jesus was in the Blessed Sacrament and from there um, did the Father Harden St. Ignatian retreat mm-hmm. and that was when I started writing music right um, <clears throat> so you know so that's kind of it's kind of like, you know, it's interesting when you were raised, all the things that you do, they all kind of tie in. You know, God's so beautiful and, and so wonderful and how he uses those things that you don't realize, uh, but they come back later where writing the music and the style of music and right. the kind of thinking was from my youth. Yeah, of uh, course, of course. Now, you, your husband, correct me if I'm wrong, but your husband and you, you, you have a foundation, the St. Philomena Foundation. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that, and, your, and that is, uh, I, suppose, I, I guess, as a, as a family ministry. Right, yeah, it's, it's grown into that. Uh, once I started writing the music, and I, I was doing a retreat for 30 days and spending daily uh, I would go to Mass and then several times a week sit before the Blessed Sacrament and journal because that's what mm-hmm. uh, the priest in confession had told me to do. Yeah. And so then I started writing music and then from that um, I had this music and this uh, priest who became our spiritual director would take the music that I was writing and take it on retreat with him playing it and people would ask him for the recordings of it. And so I thought, oh, that's, what am I going to, I'm not going to record that. You know, I I didn't even think of anything like that. So we had no money to record uh, an album or anything. So I had just 
learned about St. Philomena and the St. Philomena cord, and a friend had shared with me the beauty of one who wears the cord, and it was just so wonderful. I immediately thought, I will start a 54-day novena to St. Philomena, Hmm. asking her to guide us on what we should do. Right. And halfway through, my husband joined in with the novena, and at the end of the novena, Father Hardin's um, obstetrician decided to become uh, a sister, a nun. Really? And she donated to us the finances that we needed to start off the foundation and record this album. And that was why we named it the St. Philomena Foundation, because it was of her, because of her, that uh, she answered our prayers. And then we... We realized that this was a something that um, was a gift from God, and you know this is His music, and yeah, whatever course. He wanted to do, He He just you know it was all His. So she's kind of like your patron saint. Now um, you have a rosary project that you recorded uh, with Father Benedict Groeschel, who recently passed away. Um, very sad for yeah. a lot of people. Um, tell us about about your relationship with him and and how that project came about. Um. This uh, the spiritual director that we had uh, was secretary to Father Hardin and to Father Benedict Rochelle, mm-hmm. and so we had gone up to visit Father Rochelle with all the children. And while we were there, we were taking pictures for my first album, and that's where those pictures are on the album for "Keep Your Eyes on the Beloved" are okay. from Trinity Retreat House. Yeah, and. Um, so that's when we got to meet Father, and we, we sang for Mass. He said Mass, and then we met his secretary, which became a, a long-lasting uh, relationship. And we then, someone had asked us if we would record a rosary, and then we asked Father Groeschel, would, mm-hmm. um, would he do the rosary with us? And he said, absolutely. And mm-hmm. so... Um, he was, uh, I don't remember exactly the location, but it was out here somewhere, not not too far, about an hour or two away from where I live. He was doing a retreat for couples, and we got there like 8 o'clock in the morning, and um, there was this very, very little chapel that we sat in, and the recorder, recording man, was recording the rosary, and uh, it was just beautiful because he, um, it, it was all from his heart. There was, you know, he just, it just came so freely from him and so beautifully and you know he didn't stop and correct him nothing all the mm-hmm. meditations were just so moving and um it was just a wonderful experience i'm so blessed that we had that experience yeah uh, and that relationship that. with him now just lastly because we're almost out of time um and, and i'm almost tempted to to maybe have one of a couple some of your daughters on the program at some other time because i want to talk to them that would be great um yeah but so they call great. themselves forever your four daughters the the, the voices mm-hmm. sound angelic um it must be your home with your daughters must have been a very musical home so tell me a, a, a little bit about what's so special about this album simonetta and forever the album is called ineffable I guess I think the the beauty of the album is that this was not my idea um, <clears throat> to record the sacred music. My daughters, from raising them with my newfound Catholic faith and desire and being on fire, brought them uh, into the church and tried to give them good exposure to 
the beauty of our faith so that it wouldn't get lost like it did for me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, brought them, they were in several choirs singing um, at the church, Latin music and sacred music. And from doing that, they just began to have such a love for it. We started singing it all the time at home. And then my daughter is an organist, and we started singing it when we would go sing for Mass every mm-hmm. Sunday, and just singing together constantly. And then someone had asked us, could you please record that? And we thought, oh, you know, we, we hadn't really thought about doing that. And uh, we thought, sure, we were singing all the time, all this beautiful music. And my daughters had met Kevin Allen, and there was some of his music that he composed. He's a modern-day composer of that mm-hmm. kind of music, which is so wonderful, yeah. that um, they wanted to record uh, some of his songs. And so that's kind of how that came about. We just started to um, put together what we were always singing for church on Sunday and um, picked our favorites and recorded it. And uh, I'm I'm just grateful that they that is their... They love that style of music. Yes, that, that they that it, understand it, it, the beauty of sacred music. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's incredible, and and there are a lot of young people who love the sacred music, and so that's uh, I'm very excited. I think it's a great album to get as we get closer to Christmas. Maybe people can start thinking about their Christmas shopping and, and go get ineffable yeah. for all your loved ones. It's great, beautiful, beautiful sacred music, traditional as well as some some contemporary, if I can call that sacred music. Simonetta, that's all the time we have. But it's been great okay. to, to meet you, and, and thank you for sharing a little bit about what you do with us today. And uh, like I said, we look forward to having you and maybe your daughters back in the program. That would be great. Oh, thank you for having me. You can, find out more ab- you can find out more about Simonetta and Forever. Purchase their music or book them for an event at forevermusic.com. That's for the number four, F-O-R. F-O-U-R, evermusic.com. But I'm going to put that link on our site so you can find it easily. Here now is Simonetta with Keep Your Eyes on the Beloved from her album of the same name.
listening to Simonetta with Keep Your Eyes on the Beloved from her album of the same name. You're listening to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Check out our website at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. I think all of us remember the folk mass. We remember the songs, they'll know we are Christians and sons of God and the prayer of St. Francis. And some of you are probably still singing those songs at Mass. And it's possible that some of your parishes still list one of your Sunday Masses as the folk Mass. But did you ever think where all that came from? How did we end up with all those songs? And why folk music? Well, to tell us more, I am now joined by the author of Keep the Fire Burning, The Folk Mass Revolution, Ken Canedo. Ken, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Well, thank you, Pedro. It's a pleasure to be here. So for people who maybe have no clue what we're talking about, how would you define the folk mass? What is the folk mass? Well, the folk mass is the uh, term we use to describe the music uh, that came out shortly after the Second Vatican Council when the Mass changed from Latin to English. Okay. And the popular music at that time, in the early to mid-60s, was folk music, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Bob yeah. Dylan, the Kingston Trio. And that's the type of music that seized the imagination of young people across the English-speaking world and and uh, seminarians and, and sisters who were in their communities communities at that time were influenced by the secular folk music and started writing sacred music, liturgical okay. music, to yeah. use in mass. Okay, I, I, want, I want to ask you about some of those composers, but so just for people, again, who might not maybe remember or were not born yet, so the mass went from being in Latin to English. There was no music in English for mass, right? Is that correct? Well, there was some music. Um, even during the Latin Mass days, we had some traditional English hymnody. Yeah. Uh, it was basically sung on the organ. And when the Mass changed to English, several Catholic publishers had uh, organ hymns ready to be sung by the American Canadian public. Um, yeah. But we did not sing. Choirs always sang for us back in the Latin days. So okay. even though there were some English hymns, we weren't singing. So that was part of the, the change that people went to Mass, but they didn't participate. Can I say that? And then all of a sudden, uh, they had to sing. Right. Um, participation for your average Catholic in the 1950s and 60s was just to be there, to kneel down, to pray, and let the priest uh, carry uh, most of the uh, liturgy himself. Yeah, right. Okay, now you mentioned, and you mentioned the folk music, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and those guys, um, and you think that then the folk liturgical music had its roots in the folk music, but you actually in the book say that it has its origins in Gregorian chant. Can you explain that? What do you mean? Yes, uh, yes. well, um, there was 
I, I always like to say that because it catches people's ears. <laughs> but uh, the uh, original publishers of the folk mass music, uh, FEL, or Friends of the English Liturgy, yeah. uh, there was a publisher there named Dennis Fitzpatrick who specialized in English chant. And he was all set to um, promote his company's versions of the Gregorian chant in English. He thought that would be the way. Yeah. And and uh, he himself was a great Gregorian chant scholar, wrote his own uh, versions of chant. But it didn't catch on. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's what, what I mean when I say it has its roots in Gregorian chant, because one of the major publishers himself was a Gregorian chant uh, composer right. and, and scholar. Yeah. Uh, so when it didn't catch on, he was trying to find other ways to uh, that his company could be profitable, and that's when he stumbled upon Ray Rep and uh, right. all the seminarians who were composing folk music for mass. So these were so people you mentioned Ray Ray Rep and maybe some music pastoral musicians might recognize the name because they've seen he's a composer. He was just some seminarian who was just happening to be writing music in the folk genre, not thinking that it would be used for Mass. Is that how it was happening? Well, that's correct. Um, there was no idea, no mandate to young composers in, in the mid-60s write folk music for Mass. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Ray Rep was a seminarian uh, for the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and he had just taken a Psalms class in 1962 yeah. Right when the Vatican Council was going on. Yeah. And he was also a big fan of the Kingston Trio. Uh-huh. And so Ray Rep said, hey, what if we take the Kingston Trio style and set it to the Psalms, because he found out the Psalms were originally meant to be sung with a stringed instrument. Yeah. And that's when he started just experimenting with folk music styles with sacred text, not even dreaming of using it at Mass, because the Mass was still in Latin in 1962. Right. Now, I love the book, partly because I'm a, a, a liturgical musician as well, and I, and, but I can remember, you tell lots of great stories. Maybe from your personal experience, can you share some, some stories that you remember of that time period? Maybe some horror stories about what was happening in liturgy, and maybe some <laughs> good stories. You know, um, I grew up in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, which at the time was... Uh, uh, very far behind as far as liturgical innovation. They were very far behind the other dioceses in the United States. So yeah. uh, they kind of went to English as the mandate was there in December 29, 1964. But as far as music and singing, at least in my parish where I grew up, um, it took a while mm-hmm. for uh, Los Angeles Church to uh, follow the trend, so to speak, if you want to call it that. For example, my church, they didn't, the priest was still facing the wall uh-huh. when he celebrated Mass. We really? didn't turn the altar around till, gosh, the 1970 or so. Uh-huh. Even, um, even though the Mass was so, in English? Oh, yeah, yeah. We were so we were behind. Um, yeah. But when we did catch up, we had to change pastors for that. Yeah. Uh, we started, I, when the new pastor asked me to start a folk group, and... Uh, I did, and I had already been using much of this music because I was in a seminary at the time. Yes. Uh, at the seminary, and so it was like, um, you know, like a sponge. All the young people in my parish were like, oh, yeah, let's have more. And then I went back to school. I went back to seminary, and then I entrusted this to the young musicians. Now, when I came back for Christmas vacation, I was horrified to find that they were singing 
stairway to heaven. Oh, <laughs> the yes. preparation of the gifts. Yes. I said, what are you guys doing? And they go, oh, well, a song mentions heaven. And I thought, oh, no. Right. So they, were, they were enthusiastic. They were young. They didn't have any kind of guidelines. Yeah, I think that a lot of that was, I remember Puff the Magic Dragon at Mass. And, and I think, uh, and so, so, so there was a lot of change happening. All of a sudden, we needed new music. And there were no norms, like you said. So people didn't really know what they were doing in the church. Would you say had to sort of scramble to, to figure out new guidelines and new liturgical norms? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Nowadays, we have guidelines all over the place. Yeah, from I know. From the bishops, from the Canadian bishops back then, the bishops were caught by surprise by the folk mass movement. Yes, so I know. It was very hard to come up with ideas and guidelines. Yeah. Now, you've been a, a musician, I think it's fair to say, all your life. You're, a, you're a, 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 an accomplished liturgical composer. How would you say, I mean, looking at the liturgical music today and your music, how were you influenced personally by the folk mass? Well, I would say it was because of the folk mass that I picked up guitar. Uh -huh. um, of course, I was, you know, a big fan of the Beatles, saw them on TV and the Ed Sullivan Show and all that. And yeah. They kind of kicked me into the idea of being a musician, but I never really picked up the guitar until I saw how easy quote-unquote, it would be yeah. during folk mass. I saw fellow young people picking up guitar and playing at mass, and I thought, hey, I want to do that, too. Yeah. And it was fun. So that's how, that's, I would say definitely the folk mass influenced me to be uh, a guitarist. Uh, and I was already a church organ, so I had that background. And mm -hmm. also influenced me to consider writing songs for mass, be a composer. Definitely the folk yeah. mass was very influential in all that. Yeah, I think I should mention to our listeners, in case they have n not, not quite sure who Ken Canedo is, because maybe they know Bob Hurd, and they know the Mass of Glory, which, which is a great setting. It's too bad that there's now a new translation, and I'm waiting for the, the Mass of Glory new adaptation to the new translation, because that was such a great setting. Um, oh, thank you. Um, uh, it, one last question. This book really looks at the beginning of the folk mass, the revolution, as you call it, the movement, but it only kind of goes up until the, 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 the early 70s. Is this going to be the first of a series of books as we look at the, uh, the history? Well, you could say that. Um, I am actually in the process of writing the sequel now. Good. And it will cover the 70s, and I'm already in the process of, com of interviewing composers from that era, the St. Louis Jesuits, for example. Great, I can't wait. Uh, and also John Michael Talbot, I've interviewed them. And so yes. uh, I'm busy writing that book now. It's such a big story, I couldn't tell it all in one book. Yeah, uh, no, I'm looking forward to it. it. It's fascinating, like I said. Definitely, if you're a parish musician, a liturgical musician, you should read this book. If you're not, if you're just a parishioner, you should read this book. If you're a priest, you should read this book. If you're a liturgist, everybody should read this book because it not only explains where the music came from, but it also explains a lot of what was happening in terms of the church and the time period and the changes with, with liturgy. I, I, uh, fascinating. Ken, thank you for writing the book. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for all your music. And thank you for speaking with us today. Uh, thank you, Deacon Pedro. It was my pleasure. Ken Canedo is a liturgical composer and the author of Keep the Fire Burning, The Folk Mass Revolution. He is also the voice behind the popular weekly liturgy podcast, and he writes frequently for today's liturgy magazine and for ministry and liturgy magazine. Um, his website, you can learn more about what he does, uh, kencanedo.com. That's Canedo with a C, but I'll put that link on our site so you can find it easily. His book, Keep the Fire Burning, 
is published by Pastoral Press, and you can purchase it at Oregon Catholic Press, ocp.org, and also at Amazon. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Father Robert Gallia, with Song of Love from his album, Reach Out. I will be yours And you'll be mine Forever Not holding was Father Robert Gallia with Song of Love from his album Reach Out. Father Robert Gallia has been a guest in many of our programs numerous times on television and on this program, The Salt and Light Hour. This past summer, he was in Canada, and so we took the opportunity to catch up with him while he was here. He has a few new projects on the go. So here is my conversation with Father Robert Gallia. Rob, so good to have you back in Canada. Um, for people who are just seeing you for the first time, hearing about you for the first time. You're a priest. You're from Malta, but you're in Australia. How did that all come about? That's right. And first of all, Pedro, great to be here and always a pleasure to, to come to Salt and Light. 
Um, that's right. I live in Australia. I live in a place called Shepparton, Australia, which is close to Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And I uh, have lived in Australia for eight years. I decided to um, move to Australia while I was a seminarian um, on the invitation of the bishop then, the late Bishop Joe Grech. Uh, just to be able to work to serve in a, in a country town. So, for example, I come from a diocese which has um, 45 parishes and about 20 active priests. Mm -hmm. and, um, and before that, I lived in Malta. So most of my life I've lived in the small island of Malta where all my family are um, today. So in Malta, there are lots of... That, that parish, that you're sorry, the diocese you're talking about is in Australia. That's correct. So they don't have enough priests. In Malta, there are lots of priests. That's uh, that compa Comparatively, yes. yes. So you're incarnated in your diocese, or are you technically doing mission? Are you a missionary so priest? What, what we say is that I, I'm on loan to on the Santos diocese. Yes. So but you finished your seminary studies in Melbourne. But you were ordained in Malta. That is correct. <laughs> I, went, I, got, I got a trip to Malta to, to get ordained, and then I flew back. So I was uh, only home for a few weeks, getting ordained by the Archbishop of Malta. And then on loan. Then, then um, on loan, yeah. And you're in a parish. That's right. So I work in a, a large parish, um, about 75,000 people, mm -hmm. and um, about 25% of those are Catholic. And we... Um, and so, so I serve there in um, chaplain to about um, 2,500 students and also six retirement homes, believe it or not, and, right, yeah, yeah. and um, two hospitals. And I live and work in the parish for eight months a year. Okay. And then three months a year I tour, so I work. Because you're, okay, um, and I want to talk about that, but wait, so go back, because you said there's 45 parishes, 20 priests. You're alone in your parish? No, I'm with another priest. So how we look after three parishes. Ah, okay. So you, you have to. So there's a lot of traveling. Yes, there is. So each parish is about forty kilometers away. Okay. And so we look after three parishes that way. And now, is this diocese? I'm sorry. What's the diocese? Sandhurst. And is it considered a mission diocese? No, it isn't. So Australia has been taken off um, the missionary list. So even though you don't have enough priests, it's still yes. technically not. Yeah. Technically, you can handle it, basically. Yeah, in theory. <laughs> in theory. Yeah. Okay, so you're busy. Yeah, quite busy. And I look after the youth ministry in our diocese as well. So okay. we had a program called Stronger. Stronger, yes. And we yeah. can talk about that too. So you're busy. Your bishop still lets you, allows you to, to travel. go off for three yeah. months that's to correct. tour to, to do your music. Yes, that's right. Why? I think it's um, part of what I did. I used to tour and I used to um, speak at um, youth events even before I was ordained. So what I do is um, I'm a recording artist, so I write music, I record music, but I also I speak at youth conferences. Yes. Over the last three years, for example, by the grace of God, I've had the opportunity to speak to over 200,000 young people. Yes, and so I go from youth conference to youth conference and parishes, and I go around and I speak mm -hmm. just to help people understand, even from my own background, you know, I come from a place when I was 16 where I was suicidal, I was lost, yes. I was confused, and I found grace, I found God, I found hope. And so this is what I'm passionate about, is to just help young people understand that there is hope and there is a God there that loves them. So your bishop understands that that work is just as important as parish work? Yeah, it's a, it is an apostolate, mm -hmm. you know, just like a, a person who works in a parish, a priest who works in a parish and goes to a university to lecture. Yes. So it's pretty much the same thing, except I go around the world to lecture. Yes. And it's really two months um, of uh -huh. um, travel and then one month which I get a holiday, which I use, I utilize um, a lot of the time to, to travel right. and to speak. 
Right. So that's what you're doing right now. You were in Europe, in England. Yes. Now you're in Canada, and then you're going to be on your way to India. That's correct. Now, I'm one of the things that you've been doing when you travel is you, because you're also into multimedia, doing some video work. That's correct. If people go to your website or your YouTube channel or your Facebook page, there's all these links to these little videos that you make. That's correct. Yes. Often while you travel. Right. Yes. You see, because uh, um, the thing is, one of my passions is to help. Even um, I think is to disciple young people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not only to evangelize. Uh, evangelization is important, but there's also the importance of balancing mission and maintenance. You see. Okay. So I'm, I'm a missionary, but also I I need to look after the sheep that are already there. So yes. The, so what I do is I use social media in particular to to continue that relationship while I'm away. Okay with these young people, in particular young people, but everyone. For example, I create a, um, a travel video while I'm away, yeah. which is done professionally, in like a yeah. film company type of thing, um, uh, to keep in um, contact with, with these young people, but also giving a message. Giving a message of, for example, I just released a, a short video with the help of Adi Indra, a, a seminarian. Yes. And we recorded this video and we released, we edited it, put it together. And the message is, for example, the importance of staying connected with a community. Okay. Okay. I explained sort of, look, I'm all over the place, but at the end of the day, my source of strength is Jesus. And the source of strength that I find most um, fulfilling and m most important is, is Jesus found in the community. And that's in the, the parish. parish. Yeah. That's correct. Um, stronger. Mm. That's a youth program for yes. the diocese? How does it work? So, um, I, as I said, I come from a diocese called Santos. Now, Santos is uh, like um, four and a half hours, even five hours across, uh -huh. and, and driving at 110 kilometers per hour. <laughs> so, um, not speeding. Not speeding, that's right. <laughs> so it's a, it's a large diocese and it's, um, and let's say from one parish to another, you can travel 50 kilometers and not Nothing. see anything, you know? Really? So there's, it's, uh, you have a lot of big towns, but they're very far from each other. And we come, you come to Australia and there are no young people in the church. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing, and to the geographical distance. So um, one thing that I wanted to do was I started a, a, a retreat, a, a weekend, and where we gathered young people. And every year we used to have this retreat. Um, and this I started while I was a seminarian. And then we continued these retreats, but we thought we needed something more. So we started rallies, um, like outreach rallies that moved around the diocese. Mm -hmm. So every deanery in the diocese would get um, a day of rallies. So we have music, praise and worship, we have a teaching, we have a discussion as well. And then um, the importance of in-parish discipleship. So we started a thing called discipleship groups. Uh -huh. So those start and those are reaching out to, to young people within a parish setting. Right. For example, our parish, we had no young people, hardly any young people. Now we have about 12 Eucharistic ministers under the age of 18 who are discipled, who love right. Jesus and want to serve the church. That's so great. that's one success story. Right. So I run that around the diocese as well in sort of my free time. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm sure you have lots of free time. So I'm intrigued by the whole, the, the whole balance between what you said, you know, evangelization and maintenance. So, so we can evangelize, you cast the net, bring them in, but then you have to have something to support them and form them. Yes. And that's what you're seeing, that that's a result. Yeah. And in that the is formation. the most important and the hardest thing to do for me. Yeah. You know, it's easy for me to oh, stand on the stage. Oh, you have to walk stage. with them, yeah. Yeah. 
but it, to, to sit and walk with these young people. And I think youth ministry in particular is one of the most rewarding ministries, but one of the most heartbreaking yes. ministries, because you, you, you're feeding um, the, these young people, and then all of a sudden they go back into their old yeah. habits. They decide, hey, they cannot commit anymore. It's and it's very heartbreaking. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's something I, I'm yeah. passionate about. Yeah, no, or there's nothing, there's nothing there for them when they come back. Yeah. So would you say that the music is a way to reach out, no pun intended, yeah. you know, to reach out, yeah. but then there's got to be something else there. Yes. So you're doing... Yeah, and, and this is a thing, like people say, oh, we need good music, that's why you have young people, because you have good music. Well, I totally disagree with that. M good music is important, Yes. but yeah, um, good music is not going to bring young people to church. It, will, um, it can help them pray to be able to stay there, but it's, it, at the end of the day, they're going to find better music in the clubs. Mm -hmm. They're going to find better music out there. So mm -hmm. it's not about the music, it's about the whole. I think the most important thing when it comes to youth ministry is that sense of community, that sense of belonging, that sense of being loved within a community and not being judged and condemned. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk about the music a little bit, because <laughs> that's, that's what you're doing right now. Um, two new albums coming that's out? Correct. One in September 2014, yep. and the next one will come out probably mid-2015. So the one that's coming out in September 2014, uh, something about you, that's the yes. acoustic album. Yes. Just so that's you and a guitar. Unplugged. That's correct. No, not really. There's, I have a cello. Okay, so a it's cello. Oh, sorry. Acoustic, it's a, it's yes. sort of it's acoustic, but it's unplugged. Yes. We'll call it that. Nice. And um, it's a laid-back album. It's called Something About You, as in God, and um, Something uh -huh. About God. And it talks about um, the, w what God means to, to the people I've been working with over the last three years in a nice. parish. Good. So, and people can find more about that on your website, fatherrob.com, and it's going to be distributed in North America by GIA. GIA, records. that's correct. GIA. Okay. So, um, yeah. So GIA Records will distribute it around here, and then I have another album. Yes. The, tell me, tell it's me. The different. Dance. Okay, go <laughs> Very ahead. Very different album, and <laughs> this might cause some controversy as well. So I w got together with Only her. if you get up and dance. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to happen. Well, I'm, I'm working with a dance company. Yes. So I'm working with a company called the Ministry of Sound, which is, um, they have a lot of dance songs. It's a big company in, in Sydney, Australia. And so I'm working with them to release a dance album. Now, the dance cult culture is a culture which is massively um, inundated with, with drugs and sex and, and a, a, a lot of negativity, sort uh -huh. of putting people down and objectifying women and yes. things like that. So I thought, man, we need to do something to, to get a positive message out there. So I'm going to release this album, which is a really doof doof, like full on So like dance. techno dance. Yeah, uh, as, as far as it goes, you know, nice. but, but with a, a positive message. But you can't and use it in liturgy. No, I don't recommend. <laughs> I don't even recommend it in your meditation. No. But if you're driving, but if you um, want to dance, the car, get pumped up. Yeah, why not? Good message music. Yes, it's a good message music. It talks about prayer. It's there's even a sort of a praise and worship aspect nice. to it. But at the same time, if someone listens to it in a club, it doesn't necessarily give that so religious are. feel. But right. it gives that. And positive so image. you can infiltrate. Yes, it even has it has scripture verses in some of it. So <laughs> they'll be quoting the the scripture, and, and then they will know. Then it. they open their Bible the next week, and they say, "Oh, I heard that in the club." And you think, "Oh, the Bible got it from that yeah, techno." That's it. Yeah. Um, and the, but the album doesn't have a name yet. So not yet. Do, no. do you need people to send in name name suggestions? Yeah, if you'd like to send in a <laughs> suggestion, you can just go to fatherrob.com. Send me an email. I'm very okay, happy. Yeah, dance, dance, dance with Father Rob is already <laughs> taken. Can't use it. Um, Father Rob, that's all the time we have. 
thank you so much. It's so good to see you. Um, hope you're enjoying yourself in Canada. Um, and again, you can find out more about the work that Father Rob is doing all over the world and in his home diocese in Australia, fatherrob.com. Thank you so much, Father. Thanks so much for being here. God bless. That was a conversation I had with Father Robert Gallia in our Salt and Light studios in Toronto earlier this summer. Here now is Father Rob with the title track of his album, Reach Out. Little girl, why are you running away? So far from all that you know is true. What has the world done to you? You get up, only to find that you're crushed again. Beneath the weight of your loneliness, there is a way if only you would trust. We're listening to Father Rob Gallia with his song, Reach Out, from his album of the same name. And that concludes this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Remember to visit our website, saltandlighttv.org radio, and all questions go to me via Facebook or Twitter. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro.